Good morning. Welcome to our weekly Bible talk. Now, for a variety of reasons, I'm going to really try to make this one a little bit briefer than normal. I know I say that all the time, and they always end up being like 25, 30 minutes long. Uh, you know, it's just one of my weird personality quirks. Everything ends up taking a lot longer than I anticipate. But today, for real, uh, you know, for, for, for real, real, uh, I'm going to try and make this one brief. The passage is brief, and I also don't have a ton of time. Uh, so we're going to be looking today at Exodus 13. So get your Bibles open there. Real quick summary, a lot has happened in Exodus, um, and I don't remember which Bible talk this is in Exodus, but I think it's something like the, the 20th or something like that. We've been going through Exodus for quite some time. Um, but like we've seen, Israel is slaves in Egypt. They cry out to God for deliverance. God, in fulfillment of his premises to Abraham, sends them Moses. Moses performs these ten plagues, which gradually humble and break Pharaoh's will. Pharaoh says, "Let you can get out of here. Get out. And on the way out, they ask the people for gold and jewelry and whatnot, and they take that with them, which we think they use to later build the tabernacle. But in the section of Exodus that we're in, kind of the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter, well, actually all of chapter 13, um, it's sort of an interlude before uh, things get really hot again. We think Pharaoh's done. We think Pharaoh said, let my people, you know, get out of here. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Uh, but if you've seen the movies, you know something big is coming right around the corner. Um, but again, chapter 12, chapter 13, kind of this uh, interlude where we're learning a lot about the Passover. And then today we're going to be learning about the way in which the Lord led the people of Israel in the wilderness. Let me pray quickly, and then we'll get into our passage. Pray with me. Lord God, thank you so much for your life-giving word. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's by your word that we're made wise unto salvation. Please, by your Holy Spirit, now open our minds and our hearts to be fed by your word. Help us to see how this passage points us to Jesus and our need for faith in him. Be glorified now in all that's said and done. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. I'm just going to start in verse 17, uh, and as I go, I'm going to re uh, just make comments as I go. I, I think, and, and feel free to comment on the Facebook page or in the, uh, on the sermon audio page, but to me it seems as if it's a better approach to read a few verses, make a couple comments, read a few verses, make a couple comments, as opposed to reading this great big section and then trying to go back, because I oftentimes forget things that I wanted to say. But anyway, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that way was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see, the war, when they see war and return to Egypt. Now, I find this verse fascinating for a variety of reasons. First, let's talk about the geography. If you know anything, and you know, if you want to look at the maps in your Bible, feel free to do that. Uh, you know those maps that are tucked in the back that I used to you know, look at when the sermon uh, was particularly boring and I couldn't, have a, you know, couldn't stay awake. I'd flip to the back with the maps and kind of look at where the different 12 tribes were located and whatnot. But remembering kind of the geography here of Africa and Israel, Israel's not Israel yet, you know, at this particular time in history, they're uh, inhabited by the Canaanites, but Israel's right there kind of at the corner of Africa, and right up here is what's called Sinai. You know, obviously all of this is still the same today. Uh, what this verse is saying is that God could have led them out of Egypt along the like shore of the, of the sea up toward Canaan, but he didn't because the Canaanite or the, the Philistines are right there on the shore. Um, so to avoid the Philistines, he kind of takes them out into the wilderness of Sinai. Uh, so that's kind of the geography there. 
it raises the question, why did God do it this way? Uh, like it says, he's afraid that the people will see war and lose heart and want to go back to Egypt, which a couple of things. First, they did that anyway, even in the route that they took, as we're going to see later on. And, and honestly, I don't know if we'll actually get to it in these studies, but if you know the story, you know that once they get into the wilderness, they start resenting the fact that the, all they have to eat is manna and whatnot, and they say to uh, Moses, why didn't you just let us die in Egypt? They're a lot happier there. So they have that problem, even though they don't go up the way of the shore toward the land of the Philistines. Additionally, we know that God is sovereign over all things, including the human heart. God could have caused some fear of God to descend into the Philistines so that they just you know, didn't mess with Israel and didn't, you know, uh, didn't, didn't bother them. Additionally, he could have supernaturally encouraged the Israelites' hearts so that they did not fear. So why exactly God is letting things transpire here the way that he is, I don't entirely know. Um, you know, I do know that miracles are relatively rare, so maybe this is just not an occasion where God's going to do a miracle, but at the same time, throughout this entire section of biblical history, you know, the, the Exodus period, God's doing miracles all over the place. I mean, we've seen the ten plagues, and there's going to be even more miracles in the wilderness. So why? I don't know. I'd invite your feedback. Uh, if you've got thoughts as to why God did this when he could have done things otherwise, uh, easily done things otherwise, you know, I really don't know. But uh, feel free to comment on the Facebook page or the sermon audio page if you want to. But anyway, verse 18, but God led the people round by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Now, again, imagining your geography, the Red Sea today, and, and here's something that's a little bit tricky. The Red Sea today is a little bit different than the Red Sea of Bible times. Now, it's, it's in the same general vicinity, but today we think of the Red Sea as this gigantic thing that basically separates Saudi Arabia from the African continent, that entire thing. Um, in the Bible, the Red Sea was probably limited to more the top corner of that area. Uh, the reason for that is because if you imagine them going straight across the biggest, deepest part of the Red Sea, uh, which they're going to do, you know, I, I hate to you know, kind of let you in on what happens in the book of Exodus, but eventually they're going to cross the Red Sea. If they cross like right across the middle, that would have taken them like like an awful like weeks to get across i mean it's huge it's it's long it's deep it's it would have taken them weeks and it, it's pretty clear from later passages that they crossed the red sea in like one night so they must have just crossed like the very top section where you know it certainly was a miracle i'm not at all diminishing the miraculous nature of it um but unless they were you know all riding on on motorcycles there's no way they could get across the deepest thickest section of the red sea uh right there in the middle they probably crossed more toward the top uh enabling them to get get across in one night but anyway, again, imagining your geography, they're leaving Egypt, they were you know, in the land of Goshen, they go kind of down toward the Red Sea, and eventually they're going to get trapped, or so Pharaoh thinks they're trapped at the Red Sea, when then God does an incredible miracle. Uh, the other thing I want you to notice is where it says they were equipped for battle, uh, verse 18. Uh, by equipped for battle, that was probably pretty primitive, because again, these folks were primarily, uh, not, not primarily, they were exclusively slaves. Uh, so they're not going out with you know, full-scale armor, swords, and spears. I mean, they probably had some of that that maybe the Egyptians gave them, but still, they would have been a relatively ragtag army. Um, so keep this in mind, because later on, they will do battle with the Canaanites and whatnot. Um, don't imagine Israel at this point 
point as you know fully equipped uh, you know that this major military force they would be later definitely under King David's reign and so forth but at this time they're, they're still more almost like uh, barbarians or you know almost like Vikings or something like that uh, I, I don't say that to insult the Israelites or to insult the Vikings for that matter but but don't again imagine them as in any way on, on the same level as the Egyptian army. When the Egyptian army comes rolling out, I mean, they, they would have been the major military force on the planet. The reason I'm saying this is because it highlights the significance of what God does when he actually opens up the Red Sea. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Now this is rather fascinating. This is actually jumping back and connects this account with the book of Exodus, or, uh, Genesis. Now remember, at the end of Genesis, Joseph's there in Egypt. He's like the basically the vice president of Egypt, and things are going really, really well. Uh, but when Joseph dies, he says, I want you to take my bones back to the promised land, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and there's, uh, that's where I want to be buried. And here, uh, some 400 years later, they're fulfilling that promise and actually transporting Joseph's bones back to uh, the promised land. Now, interestingly, those bones wouldn't actually get back there till like 40 years later, because again, if you know the story, uh, due to their unbelief, they wander around the wilderness for a while. Uh, and it's only under Joshua that they get into the promised land. Uh, but here, they're keeping the promise that they made to Joseph to get his bones back there. Now, a couple of things to think about. Uh, first, this highlights how incredibly significant those promises to Abraham were. Uh, never forget the Abrahamic covenant is kind of like one of the great uh, zip ties that holds the whole, the whole storyline of the Bible together. Uh, God sovereignly calls Abraham, and he makes him these promises. I'm going to give you a land, a seed, a blessing. The promised land is going to be yours, and and to your descendants forever. A seed in your great descendant, your great-great-great-great-great-grandson, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the nations will be blessed. And I think that's obviously talking about Jesus and the way in which through his death and resurrection he's going to redeem people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And then blessing. And in, in a way you see that blessing fulfilled all throughout the, old, uh, all throughout the entire Bible. Um, in a way, when things go well for Israel, things go well for the rest of the world. When things don't go so well for Israel, things don't go so well for the world. Uh, there's that promise reiterated that God will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. And we see that all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, when somebody like uh, Darius uh, cares for and blesses Daniel in the book of Daniel, uh, his, his kingdom goes reasonably well. Uh, but when they hate the people of Israel and, and, and you know, punish them, uh, you know, for example, say Nebuchadnezzar or something like that, uh, they, they suffer. So you see that really kind of throughout the entire Bible. Uh, that's the first thing to keep in mind with the bones of Joseph, that he so deeply believes in the covenant promises made to Abraham uh, that he's even saying, you know, it might not be a while, but get my bones back to the promised land because that's the land God promised to my uh, to Father Abraham. The other thing I want to I want you to think about here in conjunction with this verse is what is the proper treatment of a dead body? What is the proper treatment of a dead body? And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go too far along these lines, but I encourage you to think through this. Uh, there's a reason why. Christians have historically treated the body with reverence even after death. Uh, you know, you can think about the burials in the Bible. They, they treated the Bible, uh, the body with uh, respect. They wrapped it up, they put it in tombs. You can think about the reverence they treated Jesus' body, you know, wrapping him up and putting him into the tomb. You might contrast that with uh, different forms of dealing with bodies today. Uh, bodies can just be like chucked in a garbage bin and treated treat it as trash. Also, I don't want to stir up a hornet's nest, but there is the entire matter of cremation. Is cremation the most Christian way to treat a body? 
Uh, if you want to explore this more, I'd, I'd encourage you to listen to the sermons that Alistair Baggett did on creation. Uh, you could probably find them easily online, but uh, Alistair Baggett actually did like this little mini-series on cremation, and he argues that it's uh, kind of inconsistent with Christian principles to cremate. Uh, now, having said that, uh, if your hope is in Jesus, you're a born-again Christian, you're, you're sure, uh, sure uh, your hope in heaven is secure, regardless of what happens to your body. Uh, you know, throughout history, strange things have happened to human bodies. I mean, people have fallen off ships and getting, you know, got eaten by alligators and, uh, you know, burned up in forest fires. I mean, there's many things that can happen to the human body, and God can somehow resurrect that. He can, you know, pull all the bits and pieces together and, and give a resurrection body. And yet we do want to ask the question, is a practice consistent with what we believe? Don't assume that just because something's popular or just because something's financially uh, reasonable that it's necessarily consistent with Christian convictions. Christian convictions, we view the body as incredibly important. We don't want to have this sort of strict separation between material and physical, uh, thinking that the you know, material is bad and the spiritual is good. Uh, human bodies are not uh, garbage to be just cast in, in, into the fire or something like that. Here's something for you to think about. When Jesus appeared to Thomas after his resurrection, uh, he, he still had the wounds in his hands and in his side. Now, the wound that he got in his side, here's something to think about. Did he get that before his death or after his death? The wound that he got in his side, he actually got after his death because, remember, the water flowed out, indicating that he had already been dead. And yet, somehow, his resurrection body still had that mark in his side, indicating that there is some significance to what happens to dead bodies, even after the soul has departed from the body. I realize this is getting kind of, kind of heady, uh, and, and you know, you thought this was just a verse about Joseph's bones. But again, I would challenge you to think through, is something like cremation, or again, I saw this, my kids and I sometimes watch Shark Tank, and they've got this entirely new way of dealing with bodies. They actually uh, put them in a great big heap of uh, sawdust, and somehow through that, uh, you know, it, it sort of like gradually uh, biodegrades the body, uh, so that there's like no remains of any kind at all. And, and the reason for this was to like save the earth or something like that. Uh, for hundreds, actually probably more like thousands of years, Christian tradition has been, we treat this body with respect. Uh, we have a sort of a worship service to thank God for this individual's life and to proclaim the gospel and to comfort those who are grieving, that sort of thing. Um, and it does kind of concern me that more and more our culture is rejecting that and turning to methods of dealing with bodies that really don't seem to be consistent with Christian convictions. Now, again, I, I realize this probably raises a whole lot of questions. Um, I, you know, do I do funerals for those who've been cremated? Of course. I, I, you know, I, I don't make this a big deal. I, it's not like a, you know, some hill I'm going to die on. But again, think through this on your own. And don't just assume that because something's popular or because something's cheap that it's therefore consistent with Christian convictions. We want to glorify God in all things, even in the way in which our body is treated after death. And maybe some of the biblical pointers are pointing us away from something like cremation and towards something like the actual burial of the body, like Christians have done all their lives. Anyway, if, if you've got questions about that, feel free to contact me, text me, email me, leave comments on the Facebook page. Uh, just something for you to think through. Verse 20. And they moved, from, moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Check your maps again if you want the locations for these. The basic point is that they're heading toward the Red Sea, toward the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. Now here we're introduced to the famous pillars of cloud and pillar, pillar of fire. 
Uh, if you grew up in Sunday school, uh, you know, maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, you were uh, told that these were the Shekinah glory, which is, which is in fact the case. Um, great, uh, Shekinah is just basically the Hebrew word for glowing. Uh, so you got this great big cloud, uh, and who knows, it must have been massive, because we think that at this time there's something like 2 million Jews that have left Egypt. Uh, imagine some cloud that big for 2 million Jews to see. And then additionally at night it would have like, you know, been something similar just with fire. Uh, so huge, very impressive, uh, but it was God's presence leading them toward the promised land. Now, thinking about how this applies to us today, uh, today God does not lead us through pillars of cloud and pillars of fire, but he does lead us by his word and spirit. If you go to Romans 8, uh, those who are, how does, it, how does he say it, led by the spirit of God or sons of God, um, th- there is definitely a leading of believers today that's comparable to uh, being led by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Uh, now, again, it's different. We don't see it with our visible eyes, um, but there are some similarities. It's still God leading us. You know, God is leading our lives. He's, you know, convicts us of our sins. He's obviously there's obviously an enormous amount in the Bible about what you should do. This is your will. This is the will of God. Uh, through all of that, He's leading and guiding your life. And like the children of Israel, we should be glad to follow that leading. Um, additionally, like the uh, children of Israel led in the wilderness, there might come some times where you're just like sitting put, waiting on God. Um, you know, it's, don't think that every day it's like heading you straight in the right direction. Sometimes you know, you're probably just sitting there waiting and you're like, what's, what's God doing? Well, your job at this particular point is to wait on God. Uh, similarly, there are points in your life that are like that. Maybe you really want to get married, you really want to find a career, you really want to have kids or something like that, but uh, God is saying, right now you just wait. I know what's up, I know what's best and wise. Your role now is to not get impatient, but to wait patiently on me. That's difficult to do, uh, so let's pray for help to do that uh, for all of us. We, we need help. So somebody in Sunday school a couple of weeks ago said, it's easy to wait on God, it's not easy to wait patiently on God. And I think there's some wisdom in that. So let's pray for grace to wait on God. He is leading us. He's definitely shaping us. And uh, you know, how does, uh, Prov- I think it's Proverbs 16, the steps of a good man are ordained by the Lord. Uh, you know, if we walk in the Spirit, God's going to be guiding us. All, all of that is very true. And yet, nonetheless, there are often long seasons where we just got to wait on God and trust in Him. So let's pray for grace to do that. We'll wrap up in verse 22. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And this is what will eventually guide them all throughout the wilderness. Uh, Imagine spending 40 years just wandering around in the wilderness, but evidently that pillar of cloud and pillar of fire was there leading them. Uh, It's going to lead them to the rock that spouts out water. It's going to lead them, you know, to manna and whatnot. Um, But it's God patiently, graciously leading them. And that's, you know, something that we should praise our God for. He doesn't just like dump us in this world and then leave us without guidance. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness in the scriptures. He's given us his indwelling Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit is very active, convicting us, renewing our minds, encouraging us, so forth. Uh, So thank God that we have such a father who is glad to lead us all this life long until we make it safely home to heaven. Uh, That's enough for today. We'll conclude there, Lord willing. We'll pick up next week with chapter 14. A few quick things to pray for. Uh, Let's pray for trust in God when we come across Bible passages, when we're not entirely sure what they mean. You know, I admit, I'm not entirely sure what verse 17 is talking about. Uh, But I have more than enough reason to trust God for other reasons, from other passages of Scripture, that I can trust Him when I come across a verse that I'm not entirely sure what it means or why it says what it says. So let's pray for grace to trust in God there. 
Uh, let's pray for guidance as we think through the most Christian way to deal with dead bodies, but also pray for grace uh, toward those who might see things differently or disagree. Uh, all that I said about cremation and whatnot, that's not like a hill to die on. I, don't make that a, something to fight about. Uh, but insofar as it depends on you, maybe think through, you know, as I think about my own death, what is most consistent with a Christian view of the body uh, and treatment of that body after death. Uh, and then let's thank God for the way that he does lead us and faithfully guide us by his word and spirit and pray that we would be sensitive to that leading and glad, like Jesus said, to, to say, not my will but yours be done. Lord, if you're leading me into the mission field, not my will but yours be done. If you're leading me to go work in the factory, not my will but yours be done. If you're leading me to stay home and take care of the kids or whatever, uh, Lord, you're leading me. Let me say, not my will uh, be done but yours. Let's pray and it'll be done. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to talk about your word today. Oh, Lord, we do thank you for the way that you are a great and glorious God. You do whatever you please. And we thank you for the way that you, by your word and spirit, are leading your people all the way to glory. Father, as we uh, think about verses where we're not entirely sure what they mean, um, and sometimes not, not the best commentator knows what they mean, help us, Lord, to trust in you uh, and, and to believe that there is some good solution here that we just in our ignorance and weakness can't see, um, but you are nonetheless trustworthy. Father, we Thank you for the way that you did lead the people of Israel faithfully through the uh, wilderness for 40 years. You led them until they made it all the way to the promised land. And we thank you for the way that, again, you love us enough to lead us. Help us to be aware of that, uh, attuned to that, and gladly follow your leading. Father, we um, thank you for, again, the privilege of studying your word. Give us, as always, grace to be doers of your word, not hearers only. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great day.